Hi there. I'm Samantha Selinger-Morris, the host of Please Explain, the daily news podcast from The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Today, we're bringing you an episode from our archive when a jury found Malka Liefer guilty of rape and indecent assault, drawing a close to a trial that had been a decade in the making. Court reporter David Escort discusses the trial of the former principal of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish school and the students she abused. We're releasing this episode for you today on Thursday, December 28th. So, David, this was a long and complex case, so let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us about Malka Leifer and the ultra-Orthodox community she was a part of? So, this story actually starts about 20 years ago in a small community in Melbourne's inner southeast called Adas Israel, and and that refers to a a congregation and a school of ultra-Orthodox Jewish people who who live in this very, very, very closed-off community. There are several ultra-Orthodox groups in Melbourne. There's Yeshiva, there's Chabad, and a lot of people believe that Adas is, is one of the most strict and orthodox, if not the most strict and orthodox. People in the community don't have televisions, typically. They don't read newspapers. They don't listen to the radio. Many of them don't have smartphones. And it means that the community, although they're enmeshed in, in suburbs like Elstonwick and Ripponlea and Caulfield, they, they live completely separate lives to people in that area of Melbourne. And, and it's quite an important point because it was in this setting that the abuse that Malka Leifer perpetrated occurred. So Malka Leifer arrived in Australia in early 2001 and, and quickly became the principal of the Girls Adas Israel School in Elsinwick. She arrived with, with a lot of excitement and, and a lot of energy in the community because she was considered, you know, as a revered religious figure and, and she was in charge of the girls' religious studies, which is a position that carries a lot of authority. She was an extremely active administrator. Um, her phone was constantly ringing. She would be very involved in everybody's lives and was known for sort of a very forceful personality. People who are close to the school have talked about her having a very, like, uh, being very forthright and, and very aggressive and very assertive in the way that she lived her life and managed the school. Mm. And uh, that's where she met the three complainants in this case, Nahama Maya, who, who goes by Nicole, Hadassah Ehrlich, who, who goes by Dassey, and Ellie Shiva Sapa, who goes by Ellie. And, and that's the context in which their grooming and abuse began. Okay, so tell me more about those three sisters, Nicole, Dassey and Ellie, and what we should know about them. I think that to understand this story, you have to actually understand where these three girls came from. They grew up in a household with their mother, who it was said in court had a personality disorder. And and what that meant is that their home lives were always characterised by some kind of abuse. Sometimes it was physical abuse, sometimes it was emotional their mother, whose name was Sammy, would deprive them of food or she would pick a child to lavish love on and then exclude others. She would tell children that they weren't welcome at home anymore. She'd drive them to the train station and and sort of drop them off and say, go away. It, it, It sounded like an environment that was incredibly hard for them to all grow up in. Really, really, really difficult. And then 
Within this context, they saw their schooling as sort of a reprieve or a break from a home life that was uh, incredibly difficult. Mm. So, David, can you tell me about what these sisters say happened to them at this school? So, according to the sisters' testimony, the abuse took place in a few different settings. It was alleged to have occurred at the school. Sometimes it was at life as home. Sometimes it was on school camps. The offending seemed really opportunistic and risky. Mokalifa would abuse them at uh, what are called colour lessons. These are lessons that are given to um, women in the ultra-Orthodox community prior to marriage. They, they give them sort of like rudimentary sexual education. Uh, and in one instance, Lifer used that as an opportunity to abuse and rape the girls. Sometimes the abuse was about sexual gratification. Lifer would make sort of noises and become flushed. At other times, she would say that the abuse was about their education. She would say things like, you know, this will help on your wedding night. And I think what's important to keep in mind is that, and this is what was said in court, that Lifer's position in the community was so senior that, according to the prosecution, it was likely that she knew that, or suspected at the very least, that the girls wouldn't be reporting the abuse because it would, you know, jeopardise their position and it would be really hard to report somebody, such a senior figure. And Malka Leifer has consistently denied all of the allegations that have been made against her by the three sisters. Mm, those stories are incredibly hard to hear, David, and I do want to get into the trial. But there was a whole big saga before that when the allegations started to become public Malka Leifer actually fled Australia for Israel. And that's when Victorian police began to look at her case a bit more closely. Tell us about that. So in 2014, Victoria police assembled 74 charges that they thought they could make work and, and charge Malka Leifer uh, from Melbourne and, and, and Leifer obviously at this point being in Israel. And it was at that point that this long epic saga of extradition began. At the outset of the extradition proceedings, um, Malka Leifer went to court and her lawyers made submissions which said that she was suffering from serious mental health issues, serious enough, which meant that she couldn't travel back to Australia. And she was given a court order which essentially said that whilst she was still suffering from this mental condition, she would be staying in Israel, checking in with the court and, and not be subject to extradition proceedings. And this decision by a court in Israel became an international battle between, on the one hand, Israel, who, who were defending their court system and the independence of their judges of, of making certain decisions about what they thought Malka Leifer deserved according to the law. And then on the other hand, politicians in Australia like Ted Ballew, who was the former Victorian Premier and former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who, who were going to Israel and meeting with leaders there, trying to push this extradition forward. And uh, this took years and years and years. There were more than 70 extradition hearings before Victoria Police's extradition application was eventually granted by an Israeli court. Uh, and this entire time, the people that are doing the main advocacy, the people that are uh, making the main inroads in seeing this extradition happen, the people that are getting community support and the support of the media and the support of the broader Jewish community internationally are the sisters. They're always at the centre of this story and they're always the ones that are advocating and working hard and meeting politicians and, and getting answers and, and pushing their case forward. 
Okay, so Lifer was finally brought to Melbourne in January 2021. What was she charged with? So she had 74 different charges relating to sexual abuse. Those included rape, indecent assault of a child 16 or 17 years. There were many, many charges. By the time Lifer got to trial in Melbourne in February, the 74 charges had been whittled down to 29. That's not uncommon in um, criminal law. Oftentimes, defence lawyers will argue with prosecutors about certain charges that should be combined or rolled up. So it went from those 74 charges down to, down to 29. And that's when the, um, the trial really began. And you followed the trial incredibly closely. You were in court most days. Tell me about it and what it was like. One thing that we noticed when we first walked in at the beginning of February to start the trial is that Malka Leifer had like, visibly lost a lot of weight in her face. I know, I know that's like a strange observation to make, but obviously she has quite serious dietary restrictions in prison. She can only eat sort of kosher food, and we wondered whether you know, that dietary restriction or stress or something may have like thinned her face. But each day that she came in, she was holding a little prayer book, and, and oftentimes when people were making arguments or the jury would enter the room, she would be saying what looked like prayers underneath her breath. There were no moments during the trial where she broke down or looked distressed. That's one of the things that we look at as reporters is, is for that moment where somebody's true feelings about a trial can be betrayed because courtrooms are very dramatic places and this, this courtroom was extremely dramatic because of the huge procedural history in bringing Malka back and the um, journey of justice that the sisters had taken to get here. It was actually, it was actually a very, very dramatic place. But Malka Leifer never seemed to betray that on her face. So, David, what were the key arguments from both the prosecution and defence? So the prosecution argument, which was made by a Crown prosecutor named Justin Lewis, was that Malka Leifer groomed the sisters, that she identified them as people that were vulnerable, uh, that she groomed them, and that she abused them. Lewis summarised the prosecution case quite efficiently towards the end of the case. He said that knowing that they were neglected at home, she manipulated their emotions while abusing them for her own sexual gratification. And that's a very good, very neat summary of, of what the prosecution was suggesting was at the, the heart of this case, is that these girls were vulnerable. Malka Leifer knew that they were vulnerable and she abused them because she thought or suspected that it would be more difficult for them to confess the abuse had occurred. And the prosecution case was fundamentally tied to the testimony and experience of the three sisters. Mm, and what about the defence? So Malka Leifer retained defence barrister Ian Hill, KC, who is one of Melbourne's best and most expensive barristers and is um, a real force, and, and he was very effective in this trial. Hill made the argument that... There were discrepancies between certain statements that some of the girls gave between 2001 and 2021, and he'll sought to draw attention to those discrepancies um, to undermine their case. He'll also made the argument that there was evidence provided by Josh Ehrlich, who was Dassey's ex-husband. And Joshua, uh, in court, recounted a phone call between Dassey and one of her sisters back in, I believe, 2008. And in the phone call... Joshua said that Dassey was laughing and giggling about 
sort of uh, making allegations in order to harass Malka Leifer. And we don't really know the context of that call. We don't know if, if it's true or not. We only know what Josh said he observed, and this is what he said he observed. And Ian Hill sought to use that evidence to suggest that at the outset of the allegations, there was this allegation made, and then it sort of took off like wildfire, and now here we are in court years later. And he used that to sort of try and impugn all of the allegations that the, the girls had made, that all of the allegations fit under this broader umbrella of almost a conspiracy between the girls to try and harass Malka Leifer. Mm. Okay, so an extraordinary process. And now, after all this time, we finally have a verdict. Tell us what the jury found and what it means for the three sisters now. When the verdict was delivered, it was it was delivered after the jury had been deliberating for a very long time. I think it was nine or ten days in total, which is a really long time for a jury to consider the evidence. And when we all got called into the court, it was extremely tense. That The sisters were there, the lawyers were there, Malka Leifer was there, and the jury reads out verdicts one by one. And the first five verdicts that they read out all related to Nicole Meyer, and they were all not guilty. And there was a moment in court I think where a lot of people were looking around quite confused because I think a lot of people had thought that Malka Leifer would probably be handed a guilty verdict on, on some of the counts, if not all of them. And when we heard those first five, I think a lot of people had had a moment where they thought potentially that the jury was unable to convict on all of the charges and, and Malka Leifer might walk. But it turns out that for whatever reason, they didn't convict on any of the evidence provided by Nicole Meyer. They only convicted on evidence provided by Dazzy and Ellie. Ellie, Nicole and Dazzy, three sisters, a fight that spans two decades. And today, finally a verdict. Malka Leifer was found guilty of charges including rape, indecent assault and sexual penetration of a child 16 or 17. Today, the jury found her guilty of 18 of the 27 charges, including six counts of rape, six child sexual offences and six counts of indecent assault. And what was the reaction from the girls? What was it like watching them outside of court at that moment? Oftentimes, when the girls are photographed in the media, they're seen holding hands. It's one, of, it's one of those things that they do quite consistently, probably because it's an immense comfort being able to hold a sibling's hand. You've all been through this experience. You've all faced the same pushback from the community as a result of reporting the allegations. It's, it's, it's an experience that's incredibly unique and shared by these three girls, so you could always see them holding hands. And when they're in court, they're also holding hands as the verdict was handed down. When they came out, they were incredibly relieved. Marco Leifer is guilty. We have waited 11 years to say those words. Yes, it's bittersweet, but she is guilty. The best way to describe it was that they were elated by the result. When you know your truth and your truth is your truth, the truth will prevail, and it did. Today, the truth prevailed, and Marco Leifer was found guilty. And uh, we went and met them yesterday to, to have a chat about the implications of the case and what's, what's coming next for them. And, and they talked about, you know, the process of healing finally beginning. But Malcolm Leifer has maintained her innocence throughout the entire court process, throughout the entire extradition process. And whilst the sisters have some level of closure because a jury has rendered verdicts, the story might not necessarily be over because 
Malcolm Leifer could appeal this conviction to the Court of Appeal and then onto the High Court. So whilst you know the, the girls can take some solace in the fact that they've got a conviction at this stage, there's every chance in the world that Malcolm Leifer will go back to court and try to have that conviction overturned by the Court of Appeal. Well, it's been an extraordinary battle over years and years, and I'm sure there's some relief for those two out of three sisters, at least. Thank you so much for your time today, David. Welcome. Today's episode of Please Explain was produced by our executive producer, Ruby Schwartz, with technical assistance by Hannah Mills-Turbert. Please Explain is a production of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. If you enjoy the show and want more of our journalism, subscribe to our newspapers today. It's the best way to support what we do. Search The Age or smh.com.au forward slash subscribe. I'm Julia Karkatzel. This is Please Explain. Thanks for listening.